All right, we're going to go ahead and uh, come down to the reading and preaching of God's Word. And tonight we'll be actually starting a new series uh, going through Colossians 3 and chapter 4 as well. We're not going to go through all of 3 and 4 today <laughs> at the letter, but just 3 verses 1 through 4. Uh, so I do go ahead and invite you to turn with me your copy of God's Word. I a lot of mine, things underlined in Colossians. In That's awesome. 3. Yeah. In my big That's Baptist awesome. Bible. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, so let's go ahead and... I need turn. a lot of explaining on Yeah, we definitely will. We definitely will. Yeah. yeah, so let's go ahead and turn to Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And um, again, this will be more of like a sermon tonight, not so much like a small group discussion, but um, we'll definitely discuss more of this uh, afterwards as well. But let's go ahead and as we're turning there, I uh, just want to kind of... Uh, accentuate what we've already been talking about this entire time. I mean, so far in our worship service, you know, we've been speaking, praying, even singing already uh, of a consistent theme. And that theme is specifically the majesty of our God who is in heaven. I'm sure you guys have picked up on that, of course, in terms of the songs we've been singing, you know, Psalm 16 even, these different themes of just singing and praising the God who is in heaven, who is majestic and holy and glorious. And so tonight, I want us to explore this theme a little bit more deeply as we approach, again, the reading and preaching of God's word. Uh, as a brief little precursor, though, um, over the next few weeks, especially all the way to Christmas, I think all the way up to like Christmas Sunday, even like Christmas Eve, uh, we're actually going to be in the letter to the Colossians, so chapters three and four, again, specifically. And so it's important to know a little bit of the backdrop, right? There's a lot of context here that um, is important to discover and to unpack a little bit, especially before we just jump right in. And so it's important for us to know that this letter, the letter to the Colossians, was in many ways actually a chain letter, um, just like the letter to the Ephesians. It was actually meant to be spread around, like intentionally, in that area known as Colossae and beyond, to Laodicea and even beyond, um, now, contextually speaking, um, this letter actually addressed especially the prevailing error that was then uh, having to do especially with Christ and our identity to him and in him. So that was the main thing that Colossians goes into. Uh, so what about the context, right? What about the actual history of it, right? We're going to be thinking, okay, well, Where's this church in Colossae? Like, what is this all about, right? So really, the uh, city of Colossae, which is important for us to know before we dive in, was actually this huge major metropolis. Uh, I think like Philadelphia or like D.C., Baltimore, uh, Seattle for me where I grew up. A uh, huge city. And it was located not too far off the coast, relatively speaking. I think within about 100 miles, if I recall correctly, from uh, the actual... Uh, sea there, the Mediterranean Sea. So not too far from Greece, right? Like just on the opposite side of Greece. Uh, and it was in what we know of as Turkey nowadays. In I was going to say, area. where was it in? Yeah, yeah, in Turkey. Regard to where the yeah. Tigris and Euphrates. Yeah, little ways away from up there. there from up north of there? Or? Yeah, yeah, further north. Yeah, yeah, all the way around. <laughs> yeah, all Past way. Israel, a little, little further <laughs> around too. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, modern-day Turkey. Mountains. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So on, on the way to Greece, basically. 
Um, but like a lot of the cities back in the day, though, even two thousand years ago, there, especially in modern day, what is modern day Turkey, a lot of those cities were heavily influenced by that same Greek culture. So they had a lot of the same gods. They ended up having a lot of the same <coughs> kind of um, like stoicism that was pretty popular. And they even adopted a lot of the same religious belief systems. Uh, one of the belief systems that was really prevalent in Colossae, especially this very like rich, you know, uh, town along the river, was known as asceticism. So that was one of the religious systems, asceticism. And if that word is not familiar, that's okay. But asceticism was basically this teaching that basically was so strict, and it taught people to basically cut off anything in their life that would even pass as an indulgence. So if you like chocolate too much, it's like, cut that off. If you like going outside and enjoying creation too much, okay, cut that off. It was all about discipline, kind of like stoicism as well, very similar to that. But it was all about like basically um, not letting you physically enjoy things. It was all about being mindful, right? Now, of course, this might sound familiar to us because a lot of this is now in our own culture these days, which is sad, has come back around. So asceticism. The other main uh, religious belief system back then was also known as like spiritualism. Um, now, this was very pervasive and it involved specifically in Colossae, the worship of angels. And even like 400 years later or so after like Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, even 400 years later or so, uh, there still was the worship of angels going on until I think like 487 AD. Like it was so popular, even after uh, Paul wrote them saying, stop worshiping the angels, it was still going on for a while, even way afterwards. Um, now, so aside from asceticism and then spiritualism, there was also in Colossae uh, just this overemphasis on religious experiences. And so people would have like these ideas of like seeing visions and they would elevate human reason like a lot of the Greeks did. And they basically found like this idea of like worth and their value in how much they knew um, compared to other people. So that was, that was this idea of like Gnosticism back then. So asceticism, spirituality, worshiping angels, that kind of thing, higher powers, higher beings, and then also that Gnosticism. Those were really popular back then, back in Colossae. But the sum of these religious beliefs was pretty simple. It was this sense of, honestly, personal pride, like in oneself, one's own intellectual ability especially, and it produced then a culture of comparisonism. Now again, does this ring a bell? It sounds kind of like our own modern day or postmodern world, really. But back then in Colossae, this emphasis on personal duty and discipline was there, and there was this like longing for higher knowledge, and all these things ended up defining the very core of the people's inner lives themselves. And so in many ways, the culture of Colossae was not all that unlike our own culture. Maybe not so much here in Lynchburg, you know, there's a lot of churches here and whatnot. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's still like a Christianized culture in many places, aside from downtown. But in America, I mean, a lot of these things are coming back into view. Like Pastor David at Rivermont was talking about manifesting. I know, Laura, you've looked a lot into this stuff. And it's very big and growing. And it's not that unlike oh, Colossae. There's a certain age group in this town that it's yeah. always, they're always talking about. It. I'll yeah. just manifest it. My daughter's on Oh, wow. That's yeah. And so we need to be very aware of these things, of course. But mm -hmm. So where does it come from, though, right? Like, where do these things come from? Well, they really come from, honestly... 
especially the Enlightenment. Not that it's all about the Enlightenment. It wasn't all the Enlightenment's fault. But at least in our Western world, a lot of these things came from the Enlightenment period. Because ever since then, you know, the 1700s especially, uh, our, our Western world has been so, like, increasingly more and more and more with every generation since then, focused on ourselves over other people. And so nowadays, in our postmodern world, we have things like radical gender ideology, fun topics like that, or critical race theory, or even expressive individualism, all about the promotion of self and comparing ourselves with other people. Think about Facebook, right? You go in there for one day and you see this religion all over Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And none of this grew in a vacuum. Like these current religious beliefs that we have in our culture, they didn't grow in a vacuum. It was very much the same in many ways as what was happening in Colossae. Rather, the things that we face now are really born out of a humanistic theology of both God and capital S self. So a wrong view of God and a wrong view of who we are as people made in his image. And so this, this humanistic theology that is so prevalent in our culture now has honestly erred especially because it denies the covenantal relationship that we have as men and women with God in and truly only through Jesus Christ. Right? And so the Apostle Paul, as we come to the text tonight, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addressed these same kind of ancient errors back then 2,000 years ago, but errors that we still face now. That's why it's so relevant, so appropriate for us now. And he did it like by correcting them, right? But he corrected them by actually teaching one of the most foundational and core truths that we see in all of Scripture. And it's a doctrine known as our union with Christ, our union with Christ. So before we jump into the passage, just in one simple sentence, what is the union of Christ teach, right? It's basically this. The union of Christ teaches that our identity as Christians is wrapped up in Christ, especially his death and his resurrection. So let's go ahead and come now to the reading of God's holy word. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, the word of God say this to us. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, this is the very word of God for her faithful and true and given to us in love. Let's go ahead and pray as we ask for God's blessing on this time. Father, we thank you that yours truly is the kingdom, the power, and the righteousness forever. We thank you, O Lord, that as we approach now just the reading and the preaching of your holy word, um, we pray, O God, that you would give us eyes to see, as Mary was praying earlier, ears to hear, hearts that would know and love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ all the more. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that as um, your word is preached and um, shared over us, that, that you would allow it to just speak to us and minister to us by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We ask, O oh Lord, that even I myself as, as a messenger would just simply get out of the way and that 
Christ Jesus would be the one who is opening these things for us and the Spirit opening the Word to us and that you would um, rather just use me as an instrument, um, as a vessel uh, to speak your truth uh, to our own hearts in this place. Would you allow us to hunger and thirst after righteousness? For truly yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, well, friends, our main idea for tonight is this. Is that as those, and this is all in front of you guys, by the way, in the bulletin, if you want to follow along or take notes or anything, but our main idea is that as those who are in union with Jesus, we have died to this world and are alive in him. So again, as those who are in union with Jesus, we have died to this world, but we also are alive in him. And we're going to see this in three primary ways Again, this is right here in your bulletin for you, but three ways um, in how we should even respond to this truth. Uh, First, we must live into our union with Christ. That means step into this truth that we are in union with Jesus. Second, we must live in mind of the age to come. So be mindful that this isn't all there is, the things that we see around us. And thirdly, we must also live for the glory of Christ. We'll see that here in our four verses this evening. So, again, we have died to this world, we're alive in Christ, and we're in union with him as such. So what does this mean exactly, right? We'll be thinking, okay, so union with Jesus, that's that's a pretty big statement. Small words, but what does that 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 exactly mean? Uh, That's a lot. What it means is this. It means that our identity is no longer rooted in the things of this world. We don't find our worth, our value, who we are as people in where we live, what we look like, the things that we put over our bodies, the things we put in our bodies, food and clothing, etc. That doesn't define who we are before the very eyes of God and before God's people. See, anything that is not from God, anything that runs contrary to his law, anything that doesn't conform to it, no longer defines and dictates who we are if we are in Christ. So when we find our identity in Christ, when we rest in the power of his life and his resurrection, it's then that we actually begin to know and enjoy the liberating truth that our worth, our dignity, and the essence of who we are as people who are found in Jesus is actually bound up in only what God says about us not what we feel or think about ourselves even, or what others say or think about us. But if we're being honest, we don't often have this kind of mindset, right? I know I don't. Even today, even before, you know, heading out and dropping my dogs off uh, before you all came over, I was so personally focused on doing the right thing or being ready or being there mentally or spiritually for tonight and focused as you know, Mary, as well, being so focused on the what ifs rather than the who am I in Christ? Who are we in Christ? It's so easy for us to do the same kind of thing where our identities, like we know that we belong to Christ, but we don't feel like it. We don't act like it oftentimes. And so if you're like me, you are often also tempted to find your worth and your value before God and before others in maybe your own behavior or maybe your own attitude or your own speech or maybe where you work. 
See, though we might not often use this word, the one that we used earlier, asceticism, we don't often use that word today, when we do what the Colossians did and deny ourselves what is good and necessary in this life in order to make ourselves more desirable before God, before the people around us, we fall into that same error of asceticism, the same error that the early Christians in Colossae did. When we crave these spiritual experiences themselves rather than Jesus himself, the one who loved us and who gave himself up for us, mm-hmm. then we fall into the same error of spiritualism that the Colossians did as well. And when we shape our lives after man-made regulations or even, dare I say, rig- religiosity, then we fail to live in the freedom, the freedom of our union with Christ, the freedom that God wants us to live in. We end up submitting, in essence, to the very things then that we have died to as Christians. We don't live to those elementary things anymore. Verse 1, actually, in Colossians 3, teaches us this exact same truth. It teaches us this. It says, if then, or literally since then in the Greek, since then you have been raised with Christ, seek after the things that are above. Where? Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Now, as simple as it may sound, this is the very core of the Christian life. See, when Christ died for our sins, he not only redeemed us from them, he effectively killed the power of sin over every single son and daughter who belongs to him. Do we believe that? See, when Jesus died upon the cross, he really canceled, as Colossians 2 tells us, canceled the record of debt that stood against his people. Mm-hmm. Upon the cross, the legal demands, again, as Colossians 2 tells us, the legal demands of God's holy law, which we had failed to maintain in our own selves, were all satisfied by Jesus' own active obedience to that same law in our place. Mm-hmm. Upon the cross, Jesus crushed the head of a serpent, Satan, the adversary of God's people, who led our first parents, Adam and Eve, into captivity to sin. Upon the cross, Jesus, again as Colossians 2 tells us, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing triumphing over them in him, meaning in his own body. (laughs) Upon the cross, Jesus then became our circumcision, again as Colossians 2 tells us. He was cut off for the eternal cleansing of us, his people, in whom we are baptized, forever sprinkled clean with his own blood, our lives forever being hidden within him, according to the very word of God in Colossians 2, 11 through 12. This is all the big context, theologically speaking, that Paul is getting at before he finally jumps into our passage and tells us, therefore, set your minds on things above. Seek after the things of Christ. According to the gospel, then, every vice, every sin, every failed, even humanistic attempt to control God's people is now powerless. The enemy has nothing on you if you belong to Jesus, if you're in union with Christ. See, the enemy is now defeated. He is defanged. And he is essentially dead to each one of us whose life is fixed in Christ and his redeeming work on that cross. 
And so what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, he has now applied to us in and by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that he poured out over us, marking us clean and pure and justified. And so now what is true of Jesus for us who believe in Christ is now true of us. We are pure, clean, forgiven, raised with him. And so we have now, essentially, as Paul says in Colossians 3, died with Christ to the elemental things in this life. That is to say, even the most basic of all things, but the things that all of creation tries to put on us, saying, this is your identity, this is who you are, these are things that define you. No, if we're Christians, none of those things define us, ultimately. Only what Jesus has said over us and says about us. How do we know this? Well, we know this because we are also raised to newness of life in Jesus. See, this is the core, the essence of the Christian life, that we are, again, that phrase, in union with him, one with Christ, never to be separated or taken out of his loving grip of love over us. And none of this is our own doing. It's all a gift, right? Lest we should boast. Rather, salvation is all God's work. It's the clever design of his eternal covenant, a covenant that did not find but actually created that, that which was pleasing to God. And so in love, the same love, the Father then predestined us for this gloriously sublime purpose, for us to be in Christ for all eternity, the only beloved Son. Friends, do you live into this union with Christ on a daily basis? Do you step into it? Do you walk in light of it? Do you seek after the glorious things of Christ and desire in your own heart to know the riches of his grace that are showered over you and upon you in every situation as his beloved daughter? Do you know, do you rest in the love of God over you? Are you learning much of the Lord Jesus and are you living much in the smiles of God? Well, if so, you will know and feel all the more the eyes of our Father who sees all things and has yet settled on you in love. This brings us to our second point that we must now live in mind of the age to come. And we see this in verses two through three specifically. See here in these two verses, right in the middle of our passage, they continue the same line of teaching all about being in union with Jesus. See, since we are raised with Christ, all that we are as his people, all that we are in essence and in our being as well, all of it is sourced in Christ. And so the command here is this, that we must set our minds on the things that are above. But why? Why should we think about the things above? You know, the heavenly things. Why should we be so fixed on those things? Well, it's because we have, as the word tells us, we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. So what does it then mean to be sourced in Christ? You know, to find our source, our origin in him, so to speak. Well, it means that our minds and our souls and our bodies have been actually fearfully and wonderfully made. And that we've been carefully designed by him and to him and for him 
in all of life situations. We belong in both body and soul, life and death to our faithful Lord Jesus Christ. And because of these things, Christ holds us together in his always kind, never wavering love toward us. So to illustrate this idea of being sourced in something else, because I know this sounds like a kind of a little weird perhaps, right? A little, little foreign to us. We don't think about being sourced in something else. <coughs> but to illustrate this idea, I know a few of us here, at least a couple of us, um, maybe you as well, Esther, are fans of good coffee, right? Good I know Laura's good coffee, right? Mm. Yeah, we got, we got three of us here. I know Laura's not really that much of a coffee drinker anymore. There you go. So you're a fan of good coffee. You're just not like, yeah. Okay. So all four of us then are fans of good coffee. Right? The burnt stuff. I'm a fan of that. Yeah, you are a fan of that. Oh. Okay, so some of us are fans of good coffee here. I'm just teasing. (laughs) But whenever like you go to the grocery store, for instance, or like you're at a coffee shop and you see the list of coffees right in front of you, um, you'll often see the source like the origin, right? Like where it came from, like Guatemala or Turkey, maybe, or even Mexico, like Food Lion has, you know, Mexican coffee. And one of my favorite coffees though, as a lot of you know, I think all of you even know this, is, uh, um, you know, Golf Park Coffee here in town where they serve Blanchard's, which is like the best coffee in Virginia, just saying, you know, from Richmond, Virginia. And my favorite one there, it's like my tried and true one, I get it almost every time that I go there to golf park, is called the Black Dog Coffee. Which, oh, really? Yeah. And Laura had heard about I've this never before. never had that one. Oh, it's good. Actually, the last... Anyway. Yeah, it's really good stuff. Really good stuff. Um, but <laughs> I can assure you, though, that Black Dog Coffee does not taste like a black dog. Just saying. Well, Don't ask me how I know I that. I had a cup of coffee but I know. and it did taste like a black dog. <laughs> and usually their coffee's good. I poured it out and I yeah. said, may I have a refill, please? I'll, I'll pay for it, but I cannot drink anything but this. So you actually found a real black dog coffee then? <laughs> yeah, the dead black dog coffee. Oh, no. <laughs> there you go. I think you just made Laura. <laughs> Very few cups of coffee I've ever it's not been able to drink. I mean, I can drink Louisiana coffee with yeah. chicory. Have you ever drank that? No, no, that sounds pretty. You ever had? No. It's a Louisiana thing. It so source of Louisiana. <laughs> source of Louisiana. They put chicory in it to kill the bacteria in the water. Oh man. They put man. chicory in. That's they bad. used to put it in dog food to kill bacteria. <laughs> it's got so, a real bite to it to taste. So probably really I, did. Cafe Du Monde from New Orleans. It's like a famous coffee. You can get a can of it. It's called Cafe Du Monde, I guess, from the Cafe Du Monde in New Orleans. <laughs> oh, wow. Coffee, and it's got chicory in it. Wow. Crazy, crazy. That's where we go. Okay. We'll come back to that in a moment, because, yeah. Man, okay. well. No, fine. Yeah, we'll get some microphone for you. It doesn't work. I got no. some. It doesn't work? Disney is. It's not okay. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, so Louis, yes, we yeah. love coffee. There you go, yes. <laughs> There's our illustration then for the night. So we like coffee here, apparently. All four of us, apparently. Um, well, so this stuff is from Richmond, not Louisiana. But this stuff's actually pretty good. They don't have to, like, you know, 
killed bacteria or anything in this. But uh, my favorite coffee, though, again, Blanchard's from Richmond. Black Dog Coffee. Doesn't taste like Black Dog, of course. Um, it's sourced, so to speak. Well, not really in Richmond, but rather it gets its name from Richmond, right? And there's a big difference here. That's why I'm saying all this. Because it might have come from Richmond. Like, they might have roasted it in, Lynch, in Richmond, but it was sourced elsewhere. Yeah, because they don't grow coffee so, in Virginia. <laughs> exactly, yeah. At least, not, at least not there. We don't grow coffee Now, there's, there's a bit of a story here, though. You wait for this, Esther? There's a bit of a story here. So... It got the name Black Dog because apparently in Richmond there's like this mysterious black dog in like Richmond folklore that used to like run the streets and they would not be very approachable. And so people would see the dog and they're like, oh, like, look at that dog. It's out in the streets. Like, what's going on with this? And so like some of them would actually try to approach it. They thought it was like a nuisance at first. Like, should we get rid of it somehow? Like maybe put it in a shelter or just put it out of its misery? Like, what do we do with this? Well, the dog was actually pretty strong and kind of noble and kind of attended to itself. And he would even come up to like little children, for instance, like apparently lick their feet. But as soon as the kids like wanted to reach out and touch it, he would like scramble away. And so this black dog became the folklore there in Richmond. And so because of that, you know, this coffee shop in Richmond wanted to name their coffee the black dog because, and this is right from their website, because it describes a wild heart and a free spirit. <laughs> <laughs> a wild heart and a free spirit. But you know what though? Like even though the name of the coffee is Black Dog, it doesn't tell you anything at all about where it actually came from. Like could you even guess the country it came from by that description? No. Like you might be thinking just the US or something, right? But like it doesn't tell you anything at all about the country. Believe it or not, it's actually just a blend of various African coffee beans. And again, in their own words, wild, exotic, and with a fruit forward flavor and citrusy floral aroma. That is a mouthful right there. Yeah. But that's that's where like it comes from. Sounds like a wine. Exactly. I know. It sounds like a wine, if anything. With with notes of citrus. <laughs> yes, with notes of citrus, <laughs> a, a floral aroma, right? So, but anyways, believe it or not, so this this is actually sourced in various parts of Africa, right? And because Africa apparently produces a lot of those like floral or citrusy kind of um, well, Kenyan coffee, aromatic things. Mount Himalayan coffee. Mm -hmm. Mount Himalayan Kenyan coffee. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Interesting. Closer well, used to make one, like you could get whole bean in a bag. Interesting. They don't make it anymore. It was excellent. Huh. Well, to the same exact point though, Esther, like, I actually have even here my notes that some of us like prefer like those kind of like African blends, right? Yeah. It's like Himalaya maybe, right? You know, I like Asian. grown coffee. It's like Kona. Nice. Oh, there you Jamaican go. Jamaican Blue Mountain. Yeah, Kona's good. Mount we think Kilim like Mount, Mount Kilimanjaro, yeah, Kenyan coffee. Yeah. We think like maybe like Ethiopia, Guatemala, Turkey, that kind of thing, right? Mexico even. But the, the thing is, like this is my whole illustration with this, is that no matter where the coffee came from, um, what like where it was roasted is not as important as where it was sourced. Does that make sense? So like it's important in the sense of like, oh like that's why like, it has that name or that's why it has whatever. But really, like, what's more important about the coffee is actually where it came from, not like what the name was. Yeah, where it was grown. Yeah, like the kind of water, the environment, things it's of that so nature, wild. right? Well, the same is true here in Colossians 3 with our passage, right? See, the same is true for us as Christians. See, while the places that we live or the people that we spend our time with or the things even that we enjoy in this life all shape things like our behavior, our style, the way we present ourselves, our thought patterns, maybe even the essence of our own lives, like how we think or what we do, how we feel about certain things. 
The core of it, though, the core of our lives as believers, the source, if you will, is really and ultimately all about who we are in Christ. You know, our circumstances don't really matter. They actually pale in comparison to who we are in Christ. We are children of God, loved ones, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, treasured and adored by God who made us for himself. And so again, like even as God looks at us, like we're the apple of his eye, as we were praying earlier, which is just like so like scandalous when you think about it. Like when we look at God's eyes, we see our reflection pointing back at us and his pupils. That is beautiful. And that's exactly what the Psalms say that we are the apple of his eye. See, we're treasured by him. And so when God looks at us, his heart longs for us to know him and to know him all the more fully, to behold his majesty and to find our worth and our rest in him. Mm. Friends, as citizens of heaven, we then are made and were made to set our minds on these kind of things daily. These are the things that hold our being together no matter what happens in this life. Circumstances, people, places, things, etc. They all fall away and fade away at the last, but who we are in Christ will never fade or fall away. Mm -hmm. See, we live here on this earth, of course, but we belong to God in Christ who is presently sitting at the right hand of God, forever ruling and reigning even now in this age and in the age to come as well over every single moment of our lives in both heaven and on earth alike. And so therefore we must live in light of this, right? See, we don't live in light of the present age that is passing away only. We actually need to have one eye, so to speak, focused on the age that is to come. The age that though, and this is a little tricky for us to understand because we're so limited in our understanding, but the age that's already begun, the age to come, it's already begun in heaven. See, we live in this present age here on this earth that is passing away, as Scripture tells us. But we also have the age to come, which is already happening in heaven right now. And one day, this present age will finally fade away as Christ comes and his glory is appearing and makes all things new at the last. And brings the age to come finally down to earth to meet us here and make all things new again. See, even now then, we recognize that This earth, of course, is fading away, but we as believers partake in this age to come already, though not yet fully, even here in this life. And we partake of it, not physically right now, we're not obviously physically in heaven, but spiritually speaking, we're already there, so to speak, with God. I know this sounds confusing, but the Bible teaches as much in Ephesians 2, verse 6. It's a parallel passage to Colossians 3. And Ephesians 2, verse 6 says this, the word of God, that we have been raised with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenlies. Which is just, again, that'll boggle the mind. Like, we already are? What? But we're not yet fully, but like, we already are? What? Like, it's both and, right? It's so confusing to us. So how can this be true? Well, this is true of us here now already, even though we do not fully realize this truth, physically speaking, yet in the present age here on earth. This reality then concerning the last things is what we call the already not yet. Things that are already true though, not yet fully revealed to us. In other words, the heavenly reality that is already ours, that is already happening even right now, 
is what we already belong to. We already are citizens of heaven, which is crazy to think about. Though we do not and we cannot yet fully realize this glorious truth until Christ returns to earth and restores all things to himself the last. But can you imagine just how much that would change our lives, each one of us here, if we were to begin viewing life in this way? That we already are children of God, that we already are citizens of heaven, though we struggle, though we often doubt that we are sons and daughters of God here? I mean, how would it just affect our daily lives if we lived with this heavenly citizenship in mind day by day, even here in downtown Lynchburg? Well, this biblical teaching then is infused with hope, uh, hope in the things yet to still come, and hope even in things that we cannot see, like Hebrews 11 tells us. So it requires us to believe, to have faith in these things. And this teaching of what is already true of us in Christ, it sees God as the Father, the one who, in accordance with Psalm 110, is sitting right next to Christ even now and is making all things new, even now, though in heaven and only here spiritually as we see it. How? By subduing each and every last one of Christ's enemies and ours under his feet, as Psalm 110 says. And we see the same truth, that same truth from Psalm 110, repeated over and over and over and over again. I think it's like 12 or 13 different times in the letter to the Hebrews alone, let alone elsewhere in the rest of Scripture. It's a truth that Jesus is, in fact, subduing his enemies even now, though we can't fully see it, even here as he is presently ruling and reigning over us and presently conquering every rebel power in this life until the final day when he brings his physical reign finally down here to this earth to restore and to renew. So this brings us to our third and last point for this evening. And it's this, that we must live for the glory of Christ. Again, we see this in verse four. We must live for the glory of Christ. So what is our response then as believers in him, especially those whose lives have been already submitted to his lordship? You know, for all of us here, of course, as believers, like, yeah, Christ is Lord. Like, he, we desire him. We desire to know him all the more. But how do, we, how do we then respond? I mean, do we respond by becoming legalistic? Like, all about our morals and doing the right thing? <laughs> or do we become mystical and so, you know, heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good, so to speak? mystical in how we view things around us? Do we become ascetic like those Colossians in the first century? Absolutely not. Rather, what we should do is become more and more like the Lord himself. Do we become more and more like the culture? Not at all. (laughs) Rather, we reject the false religions that we see cropping up around us. When our culture, especially even here in Lynchburg, in the public school system and beyond, is pushing new gender ideologies and theories regarding human sexuality and critical race theory, as we see banners even up and down this street here on Court Street, maybe even hints of cultural Marxism and communism and things of that nature, do we just go along with it? No. Rather, we must keep setting our minds on the things that are above and not let our hearts become disenfranchised 
or hopeless because of the things that we see that grieve us as believers in this life. We shouldn't let our hearts and our souls and our minds become enticed or lured away or captured then by anything that is contrary to the word of God. Rather, as verse 4 tells us, we must live for the glory of Christ who is yet to come in power and glory. Colossians 3 verse 4 says this again, When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so the beauty of this biblical doctrine that Christ is coming again in glory doesn't just mean that, um, um, yeah, this is something for us to just wait for. <laughs> this is something that we're meant to just actually long for in the meantime. Something that we're actually meant to uh, live into, so to speak, to desire, to pray for, to pray for God's glory to come. And as we realize more and more that we are truly dead to sin that is powerless over us and we're alive to God in Christ, it gives us the stamina, the fervor, the hope to keep on pressing on. So this doctrine of the union with Christ then, the same theme that we've been touching on upon this evening, it really assures us of a great and glorious truth. This truth that when Christ appears in glory at the last, we too will also appear with him in glory. We'll be there with him. It's like he's going to scoop us up in his arms and say, yeah, they're with me. They belong to me. They're mine. I've known them since before eternity began. And here they are. Look at them. That's the beauty of being in union with Jesus. When he appears in glory, we too will appear with him in that. For we're in Jesus. We're in Christ. And at the last then, on that glorious day, the world will see the glory of Christ our Savior, and we too will enjoy the fullness of his reign of peace for all eternity as co-heirs with him. At the last, all of the treasures of knowledge which are hidden in God will be finally unveiled fully, one by one by one to us. And at the last, we who are also hidden in Christ will be as Romans 8 tells us, unveiled as the sons and daughters of God that we are in him. At the last, our souls will be reunited with our renewed and resurrected bodies, our bodies that will be made whole and healthy and free from the curse of sin and death, finally. At the last, the glorious things that are spoken of Zion, the city of our God, will be spoken over each one of us who believe. The glorious things of Zion. In the words of the famous hymn writer John Newton, who wrote that hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, he said this, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. So Savior, since of Zion city, I through grace, I through grace rather, a member am, let the world deride or pity 
I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasures, all his boasted pomp and show, but solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Friends, this is our inheritance. This is who we are in Christ. This is actually what awaits us. And so when we live in light of these glorious truths, how do you think this then will affect our daily lives as we go out from this place? How will it affect our witness of Christ in our downtown community here in Lynchburg, especially on these streets where we live? How will it affect the way that we worship together here at City Light now and even in the weeks to come? Well, I believe that as we lean into this glorious truth of our union with Christ, our speech, our faith, our life, our conduct, and our purity will be made known to all, especially our neighbors, one by one, as they see Jesus and his love in us. See, as we are emboldened to live then before others under the banner of Christ here in downtown Lynchburg, we will have many, many opportunities to speak freely with them of the love of Christ and point them to the Savior that we ourselves are in. And so as we conclude then, my challenge for each one of us here at City Light, both now and for the weeks to come, is simply this. Live in Christ. Hope in Christ. Glory in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are truly so good and gracious over us. We thank you, O Lord, that yours truly is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And that as we desire to know you and to be known by you all the more, that we await a day over which those glorious things will be spoken over us, and we will know the love of Christ and know you all the more. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts for that day and let us have even a foretaste of these glorious things that we can only even dream of now. Let's have a foretaste, though, of these things and let it guide us and direct us, O Lord, in how we live and how we work and how we worship here, how we evangelize our neighbors, how we pour into the lives of others and disciple them, Lord. May it cause every one of the things that we do here as City Light Uh, now and in the months and in the years to come, uh, may it truly affect us. And so Jesus, we thank you for this time. We pray this in your holy name.